Welcome to Ausfilm Creatives, a podcast about Australian creatives working behind the camera. My name is Peter Sylvester and I'm your host. I've got Abraham Joff, ACS, with me here. If you haven't seen Tales by Light on Netflix, two seasons of that on, on there, amazing piece of documentary filmmaking. So yeah, I just want to have a chat to him about his experience as a cinematographer, doing his own project. So welcome to the show. Thanks, Pete. Really good to be here. I like to get to know people as far as where did they come from? Like, what's your background? How you got into it? Yeah, I guess for me, my love of the outside world and storytelling and and just the real life subject matter sort of came about from having an incredible childhood where I actually got to travel Australia for three years with my family. It's a very unusual upbringing, which not a lot of people have uh, that sort of childhood. And those three years, those real formative years when I was sort of a young teen, um, my family just travelled around Australia. Um, My parents were writing books on Australian characters. So I got to meet all these interesting explorers, scientists, um, crocodile farm owners and, you know, all these different people all around Australia for three years. Um, and so that introduction to the big world sort of began for me, you know, before a lot of people had that, you know, a lot of people wait till they finish school and then maybe do the, the gap year, travel Europe, start to see the world. But I, I, I was sort of travelling full-time as a teenager and that was, I think, a massive head start for working out what sort of direction I wanted to take in life and I just knew I loved... Um, loved life and, and loved the real world and at the same time I was running around with a camera. Mum had a camcorder and you know we'd shoot home movies and things and um, so filming and combining that with nature started really early for me and then the other big influence which you know some people have heard me say before but Malcolm Douglas who was the like the original crocodile hunter, um, the first man really to do films about the Australian outback back in the 1960s he was a bit of a legend um, on the world around us. I used to grow up watching him. And I got to meet him in Broome with his crocodile farm and his dog Bindi. And um, we stayed there for a few weeks and got to go out and see him filming. And then I, for the next few years, I would sort of, as I got more and more interested in documentary and, and, and this sort of thing, I kept sending him little short tapes and things I'd done and, you know, kept asking him when I was going to work for him. And, you know, he'd always write letters back. And by the time I hit 18... He actually was in Sydney cutting a new um, series, which actually turned out sadly to be his last series But um, before he was tragically killed um, in the early 2000s. But, um, but I got to edit for him. You know, I was 18 and I was at actually North Sydney TAFE doing a film and TV course and was doing some, in, some edits for the um, episodes and then he asked me to come and be his cameraman for a few months up in Broome. And so at 18, I was actually, it was my first job um, and I was off, filming fishing stories and camping stories and you know, cooking. He used to do a lot of bush tucker. And so that was amazing um, to get that opportunity so early. And that was in 2001. So that was sort of, I'd say that's my, that was the beginning of it all. And then since then, I guess it's been a sort of interesting route to where I am today. Um, you know, I, I get, got back to Sydney um, did, a, did a couple of years working for a fellow called David Ireland, who was another crocodile hunter-esque um, 
wildlife uh, personality, um, and I got to go. Uh, he he loved the fact that I'd worked for Malcolm Douglas, so it was sort of a, a shoe in there. Um, and we we went to places like Solomon Islands, Christmas Island, East Timor, all across the Northern Territory, um, shooting sort of wildlife encounter um, films. And and in between those projects, you know, started to do a little bit of corporate work, started to shoot a few weddings. Those things, I guess I was very keen to move out of house and sort of try to get myself financially set up. And like a lot of people, the, those jobs became came very easily and they paid well and it sort of did um, take my focus for quite a few years. So that took my focus for quite a few years, but um, about six, seven years ago, I sort of started to refocus myself on what I really wanted to do and... Um, uh, and get back to the, the wildlife stuff. So it was sort of a come a little bit of a full circle. But, you know, life's about timing. And I think everything I've done has all, you know, they've all um, been great learning experiences. You know, running a business has been, you know, in the corporate world, wedding world, was, was, there was a lot of, lot of things learnt there, a lot of life experiences. And I think the timing for me to get back and do what I really loved was sort of, was the right time a bit later on. Listening to that, as far as cinematography and nature, for you are sort of one of the same almost by the sound of it. It's sort of a merged thing of capturing the images of nature to try to show the importance of it, I guess. Is that what made you be a cinematographer? Yeah, I think, I mean, probably the love of the subject matter came first, um, but then I just loved, you know, I loved the craft of, of capturing things, sharing things, I think I'm a natural collector as well. I'm just collecting is in my blood, you know, I used to collect coins and, you know, stamps and all those things as a kid. And I think, you know, shooting documentaries and wildlife is, is collecting in its own way. You're collecting shots, you're trying to get the one you don't have and, and sort of um, that probably sort of bleeds on into, into it today. But um, I think also... I always think of cinematography, wildlife doco stuff is a little bit like um, journalism, that you can touch almost any subject matter that you want. Uh, I mean, filmmaking in general. I mean, if you're, if you're passionate about cars and, and you love either photography or filmmaking, you can be a, a, a car specialist um, and work in that field. Uh, you know, if, if you love um, fashion, you can be a fashion photographer or a fil- fashion filmmaker, wildlife, underwater. And there's very few... Um, professions, except possibly writing journalism, I, I, I think you could probably attach that to any one particular subject. But you know, that's I think that's great, and it's really interesting when you meet people who are who are niche in their field. I mean, you know, especially some of that extreme sports stuff. Um, you know, filmmakers, rock climbers who are filmmakers, and often the best filmmakers, like the snowboarding docos that you see, they're often ex-snowboarders that got injured and then they become the DPs, and no one can compete with you know, their particular skill set because of, you know, their background and that combination. Um, and for me, you know, the, I was very fortunate that I started scuba diving when I was 12 years old, so I've, I've got, you know, over 20 years of diving experience. So why not, you know, when the opportunity to, to film it was natural, of course, take a camera underwater and, um, and that's a whole new world in itself and I love, I love the underwater world. And, I, you know, I, I think above all I, lo- I just love the variety um, that the work I'm currently doing gives me. It's just, um, I mean, I have a lot of respect for people who can, you know, just film the big cats all year round. And I love filming big cats uh, in Africa and we've just got a show coming out. But I do, you know, I think I've got the best of both worlds where I can go and spend a couple of months there and then, you know, be in Antarctica or, um, you know, other parts of the world uh, doing underwater work or other things. And just that variety is, you know, fantastic to... um, 
keep your creative juices flowing and and uh, you get to see a lot more of the world as well, I guess. You touched on the, the transition from obviously doing the business side of video production to try to, you know, get the cash flow going. What, was, was there some, some moment that you really saw that this was the opportunity now to change and do what exactly what you wanted to do? Was it purely a financial choice or was it actually an opportunity that came along and you went, there's no way I can miss it? Yeah, I mean, there's probably a couple um, in the second half, the, 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 return, the last several years where things have really ramped up and we started making our own productions. I think um, I had never been to Africa and in 2012 um, the opportunity to go to Africa uh, arose through a, a friend of a friend, which often happens, um, that was running a safari company and they wanted it documented and um, so I, um, I jumped at the opportunity. It was a non-paying job but it was, you know, it got me to Africa and it was a one-month shoot uh, across um, Botswana, South Africa, and then Namibia. And that particular, I think that 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 one-month African trip was um, definitely a, a wake-up call to get back to what I loved doing. Um, and it sort of coincided a little bit with uh, some work with Canon. So we'd started doing a little bit more work um, with Canon that came off the back of doing just an experimental uh, film about taking stills from video. I don't know if you remember that. It was, you know, when the 1DC yeah. came out and we started pulling photos and, you know, we shot something that was off our own back. It wasn't an authorised, you know, piece of content from Canon, but they, they loved, I guess they loved the um, uh, initiative of that piece and then started doing some more commercial work for them. And the big break, I think, was they they wanted to produce some content on each of their Canon masters Um and one of those masters was Darren Jew, the underwater photographer. And the original idea was just to film interviews in a studio with each Canon master and profile their work, have some photographs that would be um, overlaid on the interview, talking about some of their most memorable images. You know, pretty simple standard stuff. And um, I had met Darren a couple of times before and, and um, when the opportunity came up, I just rang him and, and he agreed, why don't we go to Tonga and film him swimming with the humpback whales and I basically proposed that to Canon as being, look, we'll, I'll do it for the same price, um, cover my flights and, and, you know, it's not going to cost you the earth. So we went and did a two-week shoot, um, which was supposed to be, a, you know, a three-hour interview in a studio. Um, and I think when I look back at the sort of pivotal decisions that sort of got us to uh, Tales by Light and these other big projects, certainly the decision to go to Africa was, was a big one. Um, it also gave me a lot of material to then show to companies like Canon that, you know, could restart redefining what I was known for or what I could be known for. And then the decision to go to Tonga with Darren was um, the content that we created from that. And of course, you know, how could we go wrong diving with whales? Uh, we took a drone. I had a friend, Toby Dijon, come and do the flying. It was early days of, of droning. Uh, it was a custom-built hexcopter, um, you know, no, no DJI stuff back then and very big, cumbersome and dangerous. <laughs> Um, but we just got great material and that piece of content was really, you know, it, sh it shone for Canon and they were really, um, you know, stoked with it and they, you know, it screened all over the place. And it was actually off the back of that, really the back of that six minute clip that I proposed to them the idea of doing a series, um, a, a long format uh, series on uh, following photographers around the world. I think originally I proposed to do 12 episodes and we cut it back to six which was a bit more manageable and, and, and it was a good decision. Um, 
and, and really it was based off that, that decision to go to Tonga and the Africa material. You know, I had a bit of a sizzle reel of what the show could be. And um, yeah, then, you know, things flowed from there. And um, so, you know, I think maybe the lesson is you, you can't make every decision on financial. If you made every decision just purely what would the financial return be that you can quantify, um, you know, I don't think you'd get as far as quickly. You know, you've got to go with what your heart says is the right decision and sometimes, and often it isn't, you know, financial. Um, but I guess the net long-term effect is that, you know, it can lead to financial and, and that will follow if, um, if obviously you've, you can produce the goods and you've got something to say and you can, you can pull, pull the content together. And I keep, you know, we keep doing that today. You know, we've, we've got several projects, um, you know, we've got other series in development. We've got, um, we've just finished Tales by Light 3, season three, which is coming to Netflix in, uh, December 21st um, and the Big Cat Tales series which is a sort of a break it's a show that became you know that originated from Tales you know one of the great things about Tales by Light and it's in its third season just completed is all these people that we've managed to meet around the world and, and, and become friends with and spent time with in the field it's sort of almost like you're shooting a pilot with every different person because you know you could take that in a different direction and, and that's exactly what's happened with Jonathan and Angela Scott in Africa, in Kenya, uh, we shot an episode with them um, in season two of Tales by Light. And um, by the end of that shoot, we already decided, you know, let's give it a crack, let's make a series. We just had such a great time working together. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, if you look back on anyone's life, you know, what decisions lead to where you are today. But I think, um, oh, that's right. The other point I was going to make is we continue to do experimental shoots and, and, you know, we've, we've got a couple that are, can't really talk about now because they're sort of uh, under embargo, but there's a couple of things that are coming out soon that were the result of a passion project, you know, and I think I, I talk about that a bit, that you've got to make room, it's really important to make room for those projects. The things that don't fit into a, a paid job or they don't fit into what you're doing, um, and there are times when you can really experiment. Um, sometimes it's nice not having an end client which with restrictions and... Um, and sometimes that's when the most exciting things can happen. Um, maybe it's a lot, you know, music videos is where all the experimental cinematography used to come from. You know, you could sort of argue there was sort of, there was more free reign and um, I sort of look at those little projects. So trying to do one a year is, um, you know, important for us to do. And it's good too if you have a team for motivation and doing something special. Um, and, uh, you know, then sort of it's exciting to see what opportunities can come from those from those projects because it's a little bit more, they're a little, little bit like wildcard projects. Um, and if they don't, often they don't take a huge amount of time and expense. Um, you know, we're not talking months, sometimes they're a week or two to go do something. So you've done three seasons of Tales by Light and I'm just interested to know, how did you maintain uh, the disciplines? Because you weren't just a cinematographer, you were the director, the producer, the writer, and as amazing footage that you've shot, also, you were able to have really interesting content as well as far as your subjects and ensuring that um, the audience have, are engaged and maintain a complete episode. What is it that allow you to be able to maintain all those disciplines that are a high quality? Well, thank you, first of all, for that. Um, I think the um, it is hard, I guess, a challenge to wear multiple hats, um, but it's sort of just what I've been doing for the last several years, and, and also the people I work with, you know, the great, the great 
cameramen that I work with in the field um, are, are also of that sort of breed. I mean, I've heard the word predator used where people are a shooter, director, editor. You know, that's sort of the modern type of, you know, operator these days for um, in a lot of fields. You know, I don't come from a traditional film background on sets where, um, and I obviously have a huge amount of respect for people who, who do that work, but it's a different hierarchy of, of working. Um, and so many of the projects we've, we've had um, for the last decade have been where you need to direct it, shoot it, light it, often edit it, um, or work closely with editors. And so, yeah, it's, it's not really partitioned up like with a huge crew. Yeah, I mean, it, I guess the Tales by Light was a lot to take on. But, you know, when you're so passionate about the subject matter, for example, writing, I mean, the writing of it is um, a lot of it has unfolded naturally as, as we've shot it doco style, and especially the last two seasons. And we've tried to, I think we've definitely grown throughout the process of making Tales by Light. I think Tales by Light 3, yeah, I'm proud of the work everyone's done on all three seasons, but I'm, I think it's evolving, um, the storytelling's evolving, and we tend to, um, I guess, direct it, but we don't have to come back and, and sort of write the story at the end. You know, by the time we've finished a project, we pretty much have it in the can and often don't need much in terms of connecting narration and, and setup. In fact, uh, Dylan Rivers' episode, the story on capturing Indigenous culture in Northern Australia, it only had an intro by Sigrid Thornton in the first minute that introduced Dylan. Mm. A few segue, segue moments, um, and because we're just trying to st stay as true to life as possible and, and have it in the field. And um, it's interesting too, like talking about shooting style, if you look at the cinematography aspect, I mean, I love shooting like anyone does, chasing the big, bold, beautiful images. But I think um, getting too focused on that stuff, you know, it means you miss out on, if you're waiting for the perfect light for your perfect drone shot, uh, you end up, you know, missing the point of what you're there to do and, and it's to, to capture the story. So we try to roll as much as we can um, and it's particularly the projects we're working on now. We're, we're actually in, in, in the early stages of production for a doco feature at the moment and we're just trying to shoot as absolute much as possible. Uh, every, every Skype call, every sort of meeting about the project is recorded and, you know, a lot of that isn't far from cinematic but it's giving us the story um, and um, so it's all, but it's always a tug of war in your brain between, um, on, on locations between the pretty stuff and the juicy story material. And I think as long as you're self-aware of that, you can actually, and you've got a team around you that everyone's, you know, you've all sort of had good prep and you know how you're going to shoot it, what type of cameras you're going to um, capture different elements of the story. You know, you want nimble handheld stuff that's not going to slow you down. If you're going to be jumping in and out of cars and trying to capture things or boats um, and, and capture things as they happen ad hoc um, and the bigger, more cumbersome rigs, you know, you just don't end up get pulling them out of the you know the suitcase uh, at all because um, until maybe those times where you do maybe just going to focus on the image or images. Um, so, yeah, I think, but, you know, surrounding yourself with great people as well where you're all you know, honed on the right, um, you know, you're, you're all honed in on the story, um, you work in sync together, uh, that's very important, um, and we all share the, the tasks of the cameras and the sound and, and the droning and, and the underwater work, and so, yeah, it's, um, but it, yeah, at times it, it, it's a non-stop thing, really, too, you know, I think if you've ever done doco work in the field, you, you really don't rest until you... Um, 
you get home, you, it's 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 twenty four seven because you're backing up at night in the hotel room or the or the tent, um, reviewing what you've got for the day, trying to plan for the next day, and then it, and then you're up before sunrise. Often trying to get those early morning hours, and then you. But it's look, it's it's fabulous work, and and when we're tired or sick or or whatnot, you know, you just got to remind yourself that you're doing. Um, stuff that a lot of people dream of doing and you don't take it for granted. I think that's really important. Um, so, yeah, it's... Um, but, but I think the, the, key, the key thing we always want to do, we're always trying to grow. You know, you're always trying to get better. I think resting on your laurels and, and trying to and redoing what you did last time because it worked, um, it, it'll get old pretty quickly. So, plus it keeps you alive, you know, keeps you excited about what you're doing and it's always good to set challenges for yourself. With uh, subject matters, how, how did you go about deciding on on who who you would like to cover? Obviously, these are passionate photographers and imaging type of work where they're obviously focused at, at a message rather than just pretty pictures. But even then, how how do you find all these people that you you think this would be really interesting? Obviously, you know, research is at our fingertips today, um, and also that the circles you move in and the interests that I naturally have, we naturally have of nature, conservation, the underwater world, you know, in indigenous cultures. They're the sort of people and social media accounts that we look and research and, and they're the people we talk to. So once you're in that world, naturally names will, will resurface a few times. And of course, you know, asking advice of people we've worked with in the past who, you know, Tales by Light specifically, you know, is following photographers, but also it's grown into cinematographers as well. I mean, in the last season of Tales by Light, Sean Heinrichs is an underwater filmmaker and photographer. And Dylan River um, is a filmmaker more than a photographer, which is nice, but it doesn't matter. I mean, it's, it's imagery, storytelling through images, um, motion or stills. Um, but, yeah, I, I think we do, having said that, we still really take our time now with, with the casting of, you know, the next series um, because it's absolutely everything really you need someone with a, to be a package you know they obviously need to be a great photographer or filmmaker um, but have a, to have a real purpose about what they do and have a mission that's often greater than themselves I think that's what the show's become so to be a great photographer and also to be able to articulate themselves on camera is really important because if they can't express what they're feeling what they're doing you know it, it makes it hard to uh, to document their process so and obviously the subject matter that they they focus on, We've, um, you know, it's got to be something we're interested in doing too. And, you know, we've had incredible freedom to follow, follow the stories that, that um, we find interesting. It's worked so far, and I think, but just taking a t- our time with it, it has proven to be very good um, because you want to make that, you know, you want to get halfway through a project and, and have the wrong, the wrong subject, you know. During the process in any of the series that you've done so far, has, is there anything, an outcome that you've had that you've really surprised you? Yeah, I think... Well, look, talking about the latest series, Dylan Rivers' story of going, of following the footsteps of his grandmother, who was uh, one of the pioneering founders of, of Karma, which is the uh, it's a media association in the north in Alice Springs that was set up to sort of document and um, spread awareness of culture among Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory. Dylan's journey was to go and document some thriving, existing Aboriginal culture. Uh, in the Territory and uh, we went back to places he'd been and, and it was really, I mean, it, for me it was eye-opening because even though I felt like I know Australia pretty well having done three years of travel 
and had met, you know, communities and, and seen a bit of, of, of the Aboriginal world, uh, I was still really um, amazed and, you know, honoured, thrilled to see what we saw um, through Dylan's eyes. And that was great. And I was really proud to be Aussie and proud of what we've got. And I think too often, and I'm guilty of this too, we go to Africa and other places, Papua New Guinea, to shoot our, you know, Indigenous stories and maybe ignore a little bit what's on our back doorstep. And I think there's obviously we just scratched the surface with the story we, we told. We only had an hour to do it, but there's so much more out there that should be recorded in Australia. I'd love to do more Aboriginal um, Australian stories. Um, and I think, you know, back to season two, um, the shark story, which is still for a lot of people, you know, was one of the biggest impacts, you know, based on feedback uh, from that series, which was Eric Chang and Jim Abernethy um, diving with the tiger sharks in the Bahamas and patting these huge, huge bull sharks, tiger sharks, and, and the interactions and, you know, the, um, the sentient, you know, Jim describes them as sentient beings like a dog, you know, and it, it, it was exactly what he said it would be, and it was amazing. And, and I, even Eric, who had done many dives there in the past with Jim, um, he hadn't seen the evolution of that interaction that Jim has has had with the sharks and that blew our minds, you know, and then I knew we had something very special when we shot that and, um, you know, it was um, interesting too, you know, Nat Geo screened that series and they put out like a three-minute little cut down of the shark's story and it was called A Sharks Like Dogs, which was a really, you know, clickbait title and it had 23 million views in... in you know, five days or something. It just went bananas, you know, 40, 50,000 comments. And all of them that I read were all people like, wow, I'll never see sharks the same way again. This has redefined what I think of them. They're not just killing machines. Um, so that sort of impact, that's that's the biggest thing we get out of the platform of what we have with Tales by Light and now Netflix, of course, reaching so many people is the ability to really change perspectives, influence people, hopefully have a good uh, and a deep impact on the world. Um, so that opportunity is sort of really, you sort of feel a responsibility to use that well, wisely, if you've got that um, and we've got the freedom we have to choose. And that's sort of why we've focused on the stories we have. Um, it's definitely been a, a big factor. Um, so, yeah, I mean, how, how much more do you want in terms of, you know, fulfilment? You know, we feel very fortunate to have, to be able to go shoot the stuff we love to do, but have a purpose behind it and hopefully change the world for a little bit of the better. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, certainly you can have the, the this kind of thing where you're doing a very fulfilling job as a filmmaker or whatever, if you're doing what you love, but sometimes you, it's it can become almost selfish indulgence you know what I mean like it's it's a risk that you could take so yeah like then that's why I always it's like why are you doing this like is it just so I, I get to cool shoot cool film and get to go underwater and shoot all the cool stuff or is it actually have a purpose and I can help someone else with it like I think to me even in film world like when you're telling a story I think that's kind of what I hope to be part of so yeah definitely I think you've captured that part of it. We can talk a little bit about gear. Um, obviously, the first season was you really jumping into using some of the latest Canon gear. Back then, you know, the 1DC was just like, well, what is this? What kind of challenges did you have by being forced to use that gear? 
the good thing is we weren't we didn't actually have any you know we did have freedom with what we used and we weren't forced actually to use anything particularly um, and we've still used a lot of Canon equipment right through from the start to now of course I think it's you know like any modern filmmaker knows cameraman knows that there's a lot of different choices for glass for cameras for drones or maybe not so much choice for drones now DJI dominates so much but um, <laughs> it's 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 a different tool for every job. So I think um, we really use a big variety of of cameras and glass, and it's great because it's sort of it's ever changing. The technology, you know, month week to week, there's new kit that comes out, and and we're trying to obviously trying to stay find stuff that 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 physically works for us, but also obviously has the best picture quality, best bit rates. Um, the choice to go 4K wasn't imposed on us at the beginning. You know, that was a choice that we made, and, and thankfully we made it. I mean, Netflix wouldn't have taken Tales by Light. They, they even said that if it wasn't 4K. You know, they were back in when they took that in 2014, 15, that was um, 15. They were, um, I think they'd already sort of started to implement this 4K only on new content. And I know of other, you know, filmmakers that have back, you know, now everyone, of course, it's, it's pretty ubiquitous, but... Back, you know, two three years ago, that some people were not deciding, and a couple had really re- regretted uh, not going 4K because certainly in the beginning, and it's still expensive, and the data's massive, and but certainly in the beginning it was even harder. But all of that paid off. I mean, my favorite, my favorite bit of kit in the last couple of years has been the um, the 50 to 1000, that huge Canon lens, which you know, very few people own it. Rental houses own it, but I was um, I got lent one by Canon for the Big Cat show, which is coming out on Animal Planet. Uh, in a couple of weeks and we took it on the first shoot and it was just such a game changer you know I can't tell you how incredible it was and I had had met a camera woman in the Mara a year before who had one and she was raving and just said it was the ultimate wildlife lens and I don't think I even put my hands one on one until I actually got the one delivered to us to take and um, you know to be able to go from 50 millimeters to a thousand and it's parfocal and it's razor sharp and it's, you know, we've got the servo zoom and the, the zoom demand, the focus demand. It's just like this freedom is, um, um, is unbelievable. It doesn't have IS, so filming out of a truck was still tricky because, you know, the bounce was, you know, noticeable, especially above, you know, maybe four, five or a mil. But um, shooting high res as well, we were able to stabilise a lot, um, you know, the beauty of shooting 4K+. Plus. Um, but that lens, you know, we, we shot sequences in that series that were just, first of all, they wouldn't have been possible to have shot them. Um, cheetah ch- chases and uh, some croc- crocs in the river, some action sequences that were, um, were just, you know, you could cover, cover every focal length you needed um, without a lens swap. And um, the reach, you know, sometimes we're filming a leopard across a river in a tree chased by baboons and it's like two, 300 metres away and be able to cover the whole scene and, it, you know, to be right there. So that was... That was a game changer, and I got back from that shoot, and I just said to Canon, "Well, that was it was smart lending me that lens because I've got to buy one now." And you know, we we since have bought bought one. Um, but yeah, so it, you know, it's probably rare that a piece of kit changes what you do so so dramatically. But that was one example where it totally did. And I guess, of course, drones. Like we've all we all know how much uh, drones have changed um, what we all do. But I think also using drones so extensively early on for tails was something that helped it get noticed visually because in 2014 uh, we were going to a lot of places, you know, filming the whales in Tonga and flying them over volcanoes and, you know, that wasn't as 
we've forgotten how how recently it has been so um, easy, I guess. And it wasn't easy four years ago. Um, but doing all that and doing that in 4K was was, was great and um, set a sort of a benchmark for us. Um, so, yeah, Kit, I mean, it's... It's a constant love and hate relationship, isn't it, kid? Especially trying to travel and drag it around the world, you know, every... And I, we always say it's always a cable that lets you down. It's just always a cable. I guess they're the weakest link. They literally come out of the cameras and, and they can get caught and pinched. And mm. um, and how many spares do you take of a particular cable? Um, especially all these... I really hate these sort of fine HDMI. I mean, HDMI is a horrible format in itself, but then, you know, these thin little cables that get, you know, so easily damaged, so the bane of our existence and um yeah it's almost always a cable <laughs> that has that has the yeah. issues yeah it's it's a bit of a it, that that's a catch-22 though because uh uh wireless as much as we love it it's it can let you down so much easier than cables <laughs> so exactly you can't, win. you can't win you can't win and uh but no look it's it's great and you know i, I do love i love uh talking kit as well as um um and we, we certainly have a lot of time on these shoots to talk about the latest gear and you know we always laugh that we can go away for a whole month and we we talk we can talk gear the whole time and still not run out of things to talk about <laughs> so yeah i guess i wanted to do a couple of questions maybe stories or things you've encountered that um when shooting uh mostly you know on location with these kind of projects is you know some of the pros and cons you know some of the challenges you might add and how you overcame them and also what you maybe love compared to maybe doing a a more controlled lighting type situation and how that differs and what you love about it. Yeah, well, look, um, uh, the beauty of Tales by Light is just the variety of subject matter that we've encountered. Um, it certainly um, keeps it exciting for us. Uh, small crew is how we've been operating uh, for the last few years, so three to four uh, is typical in the field. Um We've even had shoots as low as two of us, but yeah, three at a minimum and four is really nice. So if there's three of us, um, there'd be two on camera run running sound. And uh, if I'm directing, I'd be shooting and directing and have a second operator and someone with a boom. Uh, and occasionally we've sort of got the luxury of having Louis, our producer as well, on shoots. Things like in India, um, uh, Asian countries, basically wherever we're dealing with lots of people, uh, it's really good to have it, you know, at least that extra person along. If we're doing more wildlife shoots where it's pretty much you in the field, then having that extra set of hands is always helpful, but it's not as necessary. Um, but yeah, we've looked dealing with just such a variety of um, of situations. I guess people are always going to be the hardest and probably the most dangerous animal that you're going to encounter. Um, when you're out doing pure wildlife work, then it's usually weather. You know, if it's diving, you've got there's inherent risks with diving. Um, but yeah, always the biggest challenges are usually around people, um, and of course, then you've got the sort of logistical side of things with permits or or you know flying under the radar without permits. You know, if you're doing drone work, um, all of those things, um, we try to mitigate as much of the the hassle factors before we leave. But you know, there's always things that you've got to. Every day is a new challenge in the field, but it sort of keeps it exciting. And because we move quite quickly as a small team, we can really um, achieve a lot, uh, fly under the radar. It's sort of how, you, you know, a lot of these places just really wouldn't be practical any other, any other way. Um, I mean, Bangladesh was a good example recently, um, you know, shooting in a big city, um, trying to keep a low, a low footprint, a small footprint, uh, low profile. 
Uh, and also if you're dealing with uh, situations with kids or, you know, tough situations with people, humanitarian sort of situations, then, yeah, coming in with a huge team is not really going to work. Or if you're doing tribal work up in Papua New Guinea or, um, you know, we've done a lot of stuff in Africa, um, you just want to blend in as much as possible, which can be hard, actually, if you're a white film crew. But um, just, yeah, being personable with people and, and the, the less of you, the better. Um, in terms of the shooting, I mean, we, we, do, we don't light a lot. Uh, uh, we start that again. In terms of the lighting, uh, I guess there's been you know, a lot of natural light shooting, um, harnessing the light that we've got. I mean, we usually take light panels or we take a Dito. We have a few things, bounce, scrims, um, but it's normally just more about controlling where we shoot, what time of day, blocking light occasionally or diffusing it, um, bouncing it, that sort of thing. Um, not doing a lot of lighting uh, as such. I guess on, on, on the underwater shoots, you know, we're using... Uh, using lights occasionally, but just like on the surface, you're trying to get the light away from your camera if you if you can, and lighting off camera. Uh, that's where an extra diver comes in handy as well. Um, so it, it's just, um, I mean, I, that's that's the way I love to shoot. You know, I wouldn't call myself a lighting DP as such. Um, be more of a natural doco. That's where my strengths lie. And of course, sometimes we do light interviews and things, but it's it's a smaller part of our work. Um, and I, I guess, you know, the good thing is um, the speed of the cameras these days and, and the lenses and, you know, we're working with some pretty amazing equipment. You're certainly not lighting for exposure anymore. Um, it's, it's all lighting for mood, if at all. Um, and, yeah, it's, um, but it, it's, it's a huge variety, so it's very hard to say what one thing we do. It's all very, very uh, different um, and, you know, keeps it exciting. I guess I want to move on to technology uh, maybe I guess the the challenges in the industry and how you think it, that what we have right now, how that's affecting the industry as far as whether it's going to bring more people into the playing field or is it is it that um, it's become too easy to capture good image in a way without sounding you know a bit, bit basic about it? Um, yeah, what are your thoughts as far as the impact of the future technology and also I guess what do you hope? Uh, the kind of technologies that do come come soon. Like, what are you finding as a filmmaker that you'd love to have? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an age-old question, isn't it? It was probably the same thing happened when HD came along. People thought, you know, it's, it's going to be an equaliser. And I think definitely technology is democratised um, the industry. Um, you know, when I was went to film school in 2000, certainly it was, um, you know, you're shooting on film, you want to shoot a short film, you've got to shoot on 16mm, you know, it was just a, there was a big barrier and that's long gone. But I still think it's definitely the stories you have to, to, to tell, you know, what, you, what you've got to say with your films and that's still a separator. Um, so I think it's great because, I mean, I think people who may not have had access to things, they, they can now shoot. There's no excuse in the technology side of things. It's really cheap and, and easy to get your hands on, on good quality equipment. But, yeah, again, it just comes back to... Um, the person behind the camera, what they've got, they want, what they want to shoot. So, but you know, I do love, you know, like all of us, we do. I do love my gear, and um, I can justify, luckily, buying the latest cameras. I think the bigger cameras, things haven't changed too much for a while. I think the big changes in, in in the smaller compacts, the mirrorless, the quality, the bit rate is finally getting there, and then the high speed, well, you know, more than twenty five frames and the low light. But I think the bit rate's the big one that's been holding it back. 
So as you see more cameras come out with higher bit rates, you can start using those cameras and cut them in with, with the you know the big the big boys, uh, and that's really important for us for a lot of the sort of handheld shooting in back of vehicles type setups where you know you just can't have where you really struggle with the big the big cameras. So that's brilliant, and we, we're always using a mix of different glass, different cameras, and you know if it's my definitely the prerequisites 4K of course everything we shoot is 4K plus. I always say 4K plus because it's often 6K or 8K uh, now even. I mean, the drone technology has now got to a point where I could be very happy for the next many years with an Inspire 2. I think, you know, being able to shoot 6K RAW, now they've got ProRes RAW, um, is is awesome. Interchangeable lenses, you know, great flight time. You know, so it's, you know, don't doesn't really make me wanting for much more. Of course, we'll always upgrade when things improve. and But that's, that's brilliant. That's t- totally opened up the world of... Of aerials, I guess one you know one thing with things becoming more ubiquitous is you use drones for ex- an example. They're just everywhere, so of course, with a lot of people and, and the general public flying them, and, and why not? They're fun. You know, you do have unfortunately more issues um, if you look at Africa. You know, a lot of these places like the Masai Mara with migration, um, a lot of people being flying drones, and of course, it can just sort of it's very disruptive. And if people aren't being considerate, it's bad for the wildlife, bad for the view, you know, the public. And then, of course, more laws come in. And so we've seen that all around the world where the laws just keep getting tighter and tighter and there's security issues as well, of course, with, you know, potential uh, terrorism and, and all other things. So, you know, I I like it when there's permits to apply for because it means that we can actually, if we're a professional film crew, we can get in and get the permit. Um, and for a good example is Antarctica. We're going down to South Georgia in a couple of weeks' time and we've, we've been able to uh, obtain some... Very rare uh, drone permits for South Georgia through a six-month process, and very few people have flown drones in South Georgia. With all the, you know, we get beaches with two hundred and fifty thousand king penguins. Um, so I'm just, you know, buzzing at the thought of what we're going to be able to capture uh, down there. Uh, but we've, we're going to obviously have to do it in a really careful way and, and do all the right things, and don't spoil it. It's not only spoiling it for you, and of course the impacts on the wildlife, but you. You don't want to screw it up for the people that follow. You know that's and that goes across not just droning but all all production in the field. Is that the worst thing you can do is give documentary crews a bad name? You want to you want to leave it uh, better than you left it, so that, that, than you arrived. And that that's to do with how you interact with the local people, making sure your impact on the environment is zero, taking everything with you, um, and not disturbing the wildlife. And and so. That's really important because at the end of the day, if you, it's not about everything. You know, people are keen to get the shot and get the story, but it, you can't come at a cost to what you're leaving behind. It's just you'd be pretty hypocritical if, if you're doing that. So that's a bit of a bit of a core value for us. And um, but yeah, it's exciting to see where it's going. I mean, I, I don't, I can't even think where it'll be in another 10, 15 years. It seems like every year things progress a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but what won't change is. The stories, and if you can tell stories that have got a bit of longevity to them, that are a bit timeless, then hopefully they'll they will stand the test of time for, for many years. And so that's sort of what you know what we try to do. And so, other than having a you know maybe which I totally agree with, really tightening up on on some of these drone laws, and really, it's the it's the normal consumers that probably ruin it because they just don't they don't learn anything about what what you are allowed to and not allowed to do. Um, and that makes it really hard. But outside of that, um, uh, is there any technology you really hope that you'd like to, you know, see come to fruition? 
Um, I think, look, right now it's probably the, the smaller cameras just being as powerful as possible, not having any compromise in the image quality you can get. And then image stabilisation technology, I guess that will probably see that continuing to a point where everything will be image stabilised if you want it, the sensors, the lenses in the future. And, of course, it adds adding IS to big lenses is, makes them even bigger. I mean, we've got the 50 to 1000. It doesn't have any IS, which probably surprises people being such a long lens. But if they added IS, it would be even, it would be, you know, a third or half as big again. So they, they obviously made a decision that, that if people are on that, they're probably on very long you know, they're on sticks and they're doing long long lens work. Yeah, so I, I just think, you know, the bit rates to improve and improve on the smaller cameras. Resolution, you know, I mean, look, I'll probably eat my words in a few years, but I, I can't see... The, the good thing is about shooting, you know, people have this argument about 4K, or maybe not so much now anymore in 4K, but shooting higher than 4K, why would you shoot that? And they argue, well, you don't see it, but they're forgetting all of the ability to, all the post um, control that you can have. So, you know, shooting 4K, straight 4K, I actually don't like doing now because it gives me no room for any adjustment later horizons or, I mean, you can, but you're going to be sacrificing and now dropping your um, below your your uh, format. Um, so shooting 6K for 4K, and that's where 8K will come into it, you know, when, you know, it gives you that flexibility. And I guess in the future, in the next decade, when 8K becomes something that uh, maybe is delivered more, I mean, they're ex- Japan, I think, have already broadcast some stuff where they're doing the World Cup in 8K, doing a limited broadcast that once you make that your standard, then having a bit of flexibility there might be something that, you know, would push it beyond that. Um, I certainly think for home theatres, you know, 4K, even 4K is, you know, nearing it unless you have the bigger screens. And um, But, it, yeah, it's I mean, it's just all about image quality. I think you can get caught up in numbers, but um, great image quality is, is, is what it's all about and, and certainly... You know, your phone can shoot 4K. Does that mean it's, you know, better than something that's shooting 2K at at, uh, at high bit rate? And and you know, it's all the other aspects of of an image um, have to be taken into consideration. Uh, so yeah, so I think just all these improvements. There's nothing. I mean, I, I don't know. There probably be other things that come out that will be game changers, like the brushless gimbal, the movies and things was a big game changer. And I guess that technology will continue to evolve um, and get probably more and more compact all the time. So yeah, it's but gee, we're pretty sport now, so I don't <laughs> don't see a huge amount of. Oh, actually, probably the biggest thing is if there was a huge technological leap in hard drive um, size, I think that would be so welcome because it hasn't seemed to have been able to keep up with the, the file sizes. Seem to be outpacing the speed of how big the drives are getting. Uh, we're still only talking eight terabyte drives. Okay, you can get ten terabyte hard drives and. You know, and of course, to see that in solid state is where you know if we had a huge leap forward in solid state and huge capacity. You know, I mean, I've heard of these. You know, you hear of these sort of um, bleeding edge drives being developed. That'd be awesome because we can fast um, large drives um, that are really robust will be fantastic for the field because we just spend so much of our evenings capturing now. It's really hard, and it just it's an extra toll on the on your um on your you know your your fitness. So yeah, they're they're all things, um, and uh, I'm sure as long as people keep buying stuff, they'll keep pushing the um, pushing the technology. Mm. Uh, well, I mean, people forget with um, high resolution capture, as long as it's not upscale or anything, 
that with 8K, it actually gives you more rendition on on edges and obviously color definition as well, that that's what people kind of forget that, yes, more resolution is good, but it's actually more what it does to the color and the image itself that um, it actually becomes, starts becoming more uh, natural, I guess, the way I see um, that, you know, you you put a 4K censored shot of something and then you put an 8K shot next to it and just look at the a nice close-up of well, not even close-up but just seeing how it renders the edges of things even a lens is like the kind of characteristics you get from a uh from a, a vintage lens that the kind of output you get from a vintage lens on an 8k sensor is actually it, it brings in that that character much nicer than it would on a 4k so these are little things that I, i'm you know i'm a huge thing for higher um resolution capturing as long as the sensor is obviously designed for that. The next thing I want to uh, talk about is is maybe the Australian industry as a filmmaker. And I know that you're, I guess, doing more documentary work, but even that I think there's not a huge amount being made. And and I suppose how, how um, you know, things that we could maybe consider about how we can get that evolution happening of supporting more Australian content to be created and more like the content you're what you're doing or you know with narrative films as well that that have a bit more to it other than reality tv because we know that that's plenty of that but that's not really got a voice of any sort it doesn't really add anything to anyone's life other than entertainment which is not a not a bad merit but still it's it at the end in the long terms it's the long-term effect you want so I guess yeah, that's that's what are your thoughts on uh, yeah the film industry in itself in Australia as far as both you know documentary and narrative kind of filmmaking. Yeah, I mean I, I can't really speak that knowledgeably about the narrative side of things because that's more I mean it's more your world I guess. Um, for doc, I mean you know there are some fantastic grants available. You know you've got the producers offset and there's other um, mechanisms that grants can be applied for in full you know full. Um, budget grants um, for docos and things. I mean, what I, we've managed to navigate that um, ourselves, but it's it's been hard. I think probably some more workshops about how those applications work with Screen Australia, Screen New South Wales, every state seems to have its own body. And um, I've heard that it's it does tend to be the same people applying because once you get successful at knowing how to do it, it's, it does favour um, the people who are in it. So I think... You know, if they want diversity and they want new people coming in, opening up that, you know, that mystery of it is would be good. Um, and I guess more incentives, you know, government assistance would be fantastic. I, I guess especially because documentary and especially feature documentaries are very hard to fund and and distribute. Um, but there's a, I think you can argue there's a really good social need for the for the country to have it. Um, and there needs to be a lot more people, you know, a, a bigger cross section of voices um so incentives government incentives you know i think uh workshops and and forums for educating people about how those processes work um and then i think the other thing that's probably everyone's trying to grapple with from the broadcast side is just how the landscape's changed in terms of how people ingest media you know there were um, there's for a long time there's been quotas of Australian content for broadcasters laws about otherwise if they didn't have those quotas for television there just wouldn't be probably much at all maybe some news made in Australia but they wouldn't do Australian shows because they can buy shows so cheaply um, and that forces networks to make shows but of course 
a lot of those shows become, it can be any Australian shows. They, they do favour, you know, sports and um, I guess, you know, soaps and big shows like X Factor and those, those sort of um, Australia's Got Talent type um, uh, shows still, still qualify. So the sort of more niche, eclectic documentaries, you know, they don't, there's, no, there's nothing pressing the networks to actually air those types of programs. And then as things go to more VOD platforms, um, is that going to be something that's going to be um, imposed on the VOD? Like you've got your stands, Netflix. Um, to my knowledge, there isn't a there's no quota on those platforms, so there's no need for them to to buy Australian content in Australia. But that could be laws laws that could quite easily come in. Uh, and if they did, then those those platforms to operate in Australia would have to would have a an obligation to to show more Australian content. And um, I think that's a good thing. So yeah, so I think that that would be a great thing for. Not only for the producers, but I think for the public because it's going to see more Australian stories come to the screen and, and we're such a big country, there's so m- many untold stories and I actually feel guilty I haven't done enough in Australia too. I do travel a lot outside of the country um, and I'd love to shoot more here. And So all those things probably could um, you know, certainly help the industry a lot. What are your thoughts on, on the idea of maybe trying to engage um, local larger businesses, obviously not well, even small businesses, but possibly larger businesses to try and invest in these kind of projects, the, the value? I mean, like you said, there's a tax offset to make awareness. You know, like we, we've had, we've tried to, even when the films that we've worked on, um, the producers and the director, I, I remember, were trying to get really convinced businesses that look with the offset it's actually a really good deal because you can actually get a good chunk of your money back um or in our case you get it back after 18 months or 12 months after the theatrical release so to convince businesses to get more involved and support that part of it tales by light's a great example of of a company like canon australia who i think are really forward thinking and for them to produce content uh, it is technically branded content that series, but you wouldn't know it. And, and in fact, you know, Netflix took it on face value. You know, they they took it on what the show was, and it, it wasn't overt advertising, but it's a brand behind it. And I think smart companies will in the future, and they are now looking at especially long form content, but also short form content uh, as a way of cutting through and getting their brand out there and getting you know, it's just it's a much softer sale. Um, but I think audiences around the world, everyone's so sophisticated now about being sold to. So I think if people, I don't think people mind seeing that there's a brand behind a show like Tales because it, it's been done in the right way. Um, and so if, if companies can do things like that and get you know, tax benefits as well, then I think you, know, you will see more, more movement in that way. And yeah, I, I, I don't know, I, I'd be certainly happy to make that argument. Um, I guess I'm pretty busy doing my own thing at the moment to think about those things as much, but um, certainly, if there's an opportunity to help, you know, our little voice, we, we, we've got a, a, little, a good story to tell for a small production company and the people that it employs here um, in my company. So, yeah, it's um, actually two of my staff just came back from Wild Screen uh, in Bristol, which is the it's a biannual um, wildlife filmmakers conference, and there's also one every second year in Jackson Hole, the sort of sister uh, festivals, and they've just come back so buzzing about, you know what's out there and the other producers around the world. And, and um, you don't want to be a big fish in a small pond. Um, so, you know, we're always trying to look look elsewhere to, to bring you, you know, see what else has been done, the incredible work. And, and it's very inspiring for us to try to um, 
grow in the future and, and, and produce better work and, and, and the contacts. Um, so, uh, and, and, and having said that, there are incentives, um, uh, I can't remember the name of it now, but there are uh, grants, government grants, mm-hmm. you know, rebates available for, for international travel. So I think producers, I'd encourage them to look into those grants and, and you can get uh, a good whack of your travel spend back. Um, certainly in the first year, you get the bigger, bigger amount back. Um, but it's per project, so if you're smart about it, you can actually be getting uh, a, a lot of your travel covered if it's promoting Australia and Australian services and businesses. So, you know, we're pretty lucky, really. You can't take it for granted, all these different things that are that are out there. You know, a lot of countries have nothing like that. Mm. Um, so, yeah, just getting educated is really important. You mentioned, obviously, the Big Cat Legacy, I think it's called. Is that right? Actually, Big Cat Tales, the name, it was a name change right at the last minute. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about uh, what what what's in store for that, and what do you what I guess what new things you've done in those in those shows, and that's for Animal Planet as well, isn't it? Big Cat Tales was an incredible project. Um, I might have mentioned before one of the fantastic things about Tales by Light as a series is that it, the diversity of people we've been able to work with has meant we've almost had you know a pilot with each person. Um, you know, we've, we've been able to shoot with so many different filmmakers and photographers. In different parts of the world, and, and um, of course, naturally, you'll start the mind starts racing about you know you could do a whole series on this. And one of those couples was Jonathan and Angela Scott, the Big Cat people that people know them all around the world from a show called Big Cat Diary that was on the BBC and it was syndicated through the '90s and, and finished about eight nine years ago. Um, I'd seen them on 60 Minutes with Ray Martin maybe 10 years ago and thought they were amazing. And um, we shot Tales by Light with them. And it was off the back of that shoot. We had such a fantastic time shooting in the Masai Mara in Kenya. They actually proposed to me, look, you know, we'd, we've loved this. Would you consider doing a new series on the Big Cats with us um, in the same vein as Big Cat Diary, but a new show? Um, and, of course, I was, I was in, you know. I was totally, you know, excited for that. We didn't have any backing. Um, and these things are tough to fund. And we had a window in our schedules. They were available. I was available I had my team and I just thought, you know what, let's just take this opportunity between projects to shoot it. You know, we don't, uh, didn't need a huge amount of money to get there and start shooting. And I should say that the only reason it was possible was all of Jonathan's contacts. You know, we got subsidised accommodation through Governor's Camp. We had uh, huge support from the Kenyan government, the tourism, the Narok County, the Masai Mara National Reserve, all of these different people that Jonathan's got fantastic contacts with, we were honest. We said, look, we're going to self-fund a series about the big cats. They've known what's happened through um, you know, good television before. And um, so we had incredible support. It was only through that support we, we could have done it uh, because we still had to, I still had to um, sort of borrow, you know, many hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of a year to fly in and out our teams and, and um, even at these reduced rates. So it was a, it was a, it was a punt, but I, I just believed in it so much. I believed in, you know, Jonathan and Angela and Jackson Lucea is, is a Maasai uh, host as well that we had, who was fantastic and with a great crew. Um, we spent about three months filming uh, in the first half of 2017, unfunded, um, through, you know, um, without getting into the nitty-gritty, we had... Some negotiations with the network didn't really get to where we wanted to get to. And then sort of at the 11th hour, late in 2017, Animal Planet, we managed to get some of the footage in front of them. And, and the new global president, Susanna Dinage, um, saw it, loved it, loved Jonathan and Angela. 
and just scoop, scooped it up uh, for her um, for her channel, and it was her first acquisition for for Animal Planet as the new boss. Um, and it's just wonderful because we've got a, a network that believes in it and that sees a future in the show and, and has been incredibly supportive. And um, we're working with great producers in New York um, who've been, you know, very light touch, but they've also given some great insights and great feedback. And we've worked on the post-production side with them a little bit. Um, so, you know, I was all for that, about bringing the best shows possible to the screen. And we've got a five-part series, five one-hours airing, airing in the US on the 29th of October this year. 2018, and the rest of the territories following soon after. We don't have dates for the UK, Europe, Australia, but um, hopefully before Christmas, it'll hit the other networks. And um, they're very excited. We're very excited, and it's also being launched in conjunction with the the Irwins, um, Bindi and Robert Terry. They've got a new show. Um, it's their first, I, I think, big network show since um, Steve Irwin passed. So it's sort of cool that we're you know um, part of this reboot for Animal Planet and. It was a completely self-funded, you know, self-belief type project. Um, but, yeah, and now we're hopeful that it'll become a, an annual. But we had amazing, just amazing content in the field, amazing stories and sequences we shot with the cats. And um, it's a, it's a, it, it, the show's, there's nothing quite like it on TV at the moment because you're following the lives of individual cats and their families. So they're named cats. You know, you're following Bahati, the leopard, and Malaika, the cheetah. And the Marsh Pride and, you know, their, their cubs, raising their cubs and there's, there's obviously territorial battles and there's, there's interactions with other animals and the migration appears and it's just all real and it just plays out in front of the camera. Um, and what brings it to life is the hosts. You know, the hosts are um, incredible and, and it's just, they've got such a history in the Mara. They've got decades and decades of time with the cats so they can talk about many generations of lions and there's an authenticity that comes with that that you wouldn't get with someone who's flown in who might just be good on, you know, who can speak well, but they don't have that that background. Um, so it was an, an amazing process, and I think it gave me a lot of, you know, these projects, these experiences, you know, backing yourself and going for it. Uh, that one didn't have any funding, but, you know, I think Tales by Light gave us the, the confidence to do it, and it, it, it worked out, um, you know, incredibly well. Now it's just about getting, you know, hopefully the show will be well received and, and, and it's sort of exciting to see it play out now and um, you have to keep an eye out for it in Australia when it, when it hits Animal Planet. What's a film that inspires you whenever you go back and you watch it again? It, it, you just love watching it because it just gets you inspired. Is there a film or a documentary? Well, I think, I mean, I have to go back to Baraka always because I think it was the first film that really just set my mind on fire with, you know, the world and I thought it was absolutely incredible. It still holds up so well today. If anyone hasn't seen Baraka, you should definitely see it at least on 4K Blu-ray or if you get, get, to, get to see a screening of it, they do screen that film occasionally. Uh, that was amazing, you know, an amazing visual masterpiece um, of the planet, a snapshot of the planet. That, that's always, you know, incredible. I mean, I love, of course, the blue planets and planet Earths and all that blue chip amazing stuff the BBC does. Um, but I also love the gritty sort of wildlife docos like um, like the Cove, Blackfish. Cove particularly was was I thought was amazing. Obviously, it, it was good enough to win an Oscar. Um, and, and you know, I think you could argue it's not particularly cinematic. You know, it's just a very hard hitting um, story that was shot and told incredibly well. And that's I'm sort of that's where I've got my eyes set on doing f- feature docs and series. I don't think one's 
better than the other. I think some stories are better suited to maybe a documentary feature. Um, but the, 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 I guess the ultimate goal is to make cinematic films that are hard-hitting, <laughs> to mix the, the two and where, where you've got the luxury of cinema, you know, the big pictures, go for it. Uh, when it, the story calls for, you know, button cams or, you know, that sort of gritty um, running gun stuff, then do that. And, you know, to make films that really have an impact uh, can change policy, change laws, um, bring big issues to wide audiences. That's, you know, that's my goal ultimately. And, and you know, to be able to do that and, and enjoy your craft and then know that you're making a difference, um, you know, what more do you want out of out of life really? So that's mm. that's my goal, plus having the work-life balance that everyone chases. <laughs> Spending time mm. with family, you know, it's very important, especially with a young son now and that's... Um, that's sort of my focus moving forward. And how, how do you balance your life? I did want to touch it a little bit on that. Like how, what's some of the things you try and alleviate those issues that obviously I've experienced myself being away three, four months and, you know. Yeah, it's really hard. It's um, I think the just being conscious of it, first of all, acknowledging it is, is a first step. I think a lot of people, uh, do get, to get, it's very easy to get caught up um, in, the, in the filming world. Um, and I think being very careful of booking things in advance. A lot of things we're doing, you know, six or nine months in advance. It doesn't seem like it seems like you work it out. But if you fill your calendar up, well, then you won't have the opportunity to um, to make time. So I'm really trying to be careful in the scheduling of things and making sure I've got, you know, a few weeks between shoot, shoots. Trying to limit the length of time being away. I think three weeks is really trying to be the maximum time, and, and only rarely breaking that rule. So yeah, I'm not. I certainly haven't perfected it yet. But, but when I'm home, I'm trying to be home and be present. And, um, but, you know, I think because we're sort of focusing in on the big, these big projects and not filling our calendar with lots of small, you know, for want of a better word, tedious, smaller jobs, if we can focus on big, big projects, then I think at least it doesn't, um, you know, you've got a, a clearer sort of idea of what you need to do in between shoots and um, you don't get every hour of your week consumed that's the idea anyway. I haven't really perfected it, but you know, I don't want to be I don't want to miss out on my son's childhood. I want to be there and as he gets older too, you know, traveling together will be fantastic and doing certain shoots together where where it's appropriate. Um my wife and I we before we had our son, we she for a whole year did travel and was part of the crew in 2014, which is amazing. But even then, I think even working with a partner if if people do that, you still need to make that time. You might say you're together a lot, but it's different. Working together is very different to sort of being alone together. That alone times, you know, where you switch off is um, is really important. So, yeah, it's. Um, I don't think you can sort of solve the problem. I think it's something that you just constantly have to work on. Probably like fitness or, you know, other things. It's a it's a mm. lifelong um, lifestyle. Um, but yeah, there, there's certainly many. Um, unfortunately, really many cases of broken marriages in the film industry um, because of lack of time and attention and you know I don't want to be one of the statistics so we're really yeah. going to work hard to keep a happy um, happy family and you know it's a little bit underestimated as well because people forget that mentally you're, you're being affected by those things and that outcome of creative outcome can actually change whether it becomes more cynical or whatever but it definitely can impact you in a certain way if you don't have that life balance and yeah, so there's that definitely 
a lot of people don't think, oh, I love filmmaking, I'm, that's all I'm going to do 24-7, but you, you leave behind some of that and, and you maybe you become less sensitive to, especially if you're doing documentary type of work where you, it's, that's really important to, you know, be in touch with what you're doing and your subject. So, yeah, I definitely think it's, uh, yeah, it's a tricky one, but it's good to hear that, you know, at least you have you have an opportunity to be able to do that. So one of the other things I, I, I'd like to know, is there uh, something that, either a mantra or a philosophy or a piece of gear that that you have that's always with you i mean in terms of a philosophy of shooting you know just trying to be present and trying to open keeping always keeping an open mind to the possibilities of you know you go into any shoot trying to be prepared as possible and just and and having an idea of what's going to happen but if you're too if you're too prepared and you're too narrow focused on on your objective you you will walk past you know possibly the story a better story is lurking there that you know so I think trying to be really open to um, to seeing um, seeing the story and listening being a good listener is really really important and and you've got to remind yourself all the time because it's really easy to say those words but you know really um, enacting it is another thing but if you're working with a team you know I think if everyone's on that same page and knows that philosophy then uh, it might be one. Of, it might be either one of you that reminds the other that hey, and you know, this is good. This is there's more that we can delve here. We more we can find out, and being truthful to things um, as much as possible, good or bad. Um, so that's probably the most important thing for as a documentary filmmaker is is being um, is being curious and open minded and questioning and um, and not too stuck in a paradigm um, all the time. And um, I think there's the other thing is just re- is staying connected to family while you're away, you know, just not getting so consumed that you don't just have, I mean, the good, great thing, we've got Skype and FaceTime and all those things now that there's no excuse for, um, for being off the grid. And even if you're going to Antarctica, you can get satellite um, dongles now for your, um, for your phone. So at least you can at least SMS anywhere on the planet. There's, no, there's nowhere off the grid anymore. And that's definitely worth investing in. People, so yeah, I think those those things, and, and and like I said before, you know, I think I'm a little bit less obsessed with the shot anymore because I realise that it, a film isn't just one shot that you get, and um, you can't come at any cost uh, to the crew safety um, impact on the local environment and people. Whereas you know, when I think you're starting out, trying to prove yourself maybe more so that you know, there's probably more desperation to get the shot. Because it's you know without that you feel like you can't progress, uh, and I think later, later on you learn that you know well if if you're in it for the long haul you, you'll get plenty of opportunities for the shot. And I know I've had many times in the early on that I was you know terribly upset for missing something or being there too late a day early or late or whatever. And that's um, yeah I, I think I'm I'm very lucky that I've got the opportunities to go back to places and again and again and. Um, so yeah, they're the things I think you take with you more than anything because if you've got those uh, as part of of your um, methodology, it doesn't matter what camera you've got, you, you'll always stay true to that. And um, gear-wise, I think my 50 to 1,000 millimeter lens is and my, my and my drone; those two would be you know things I love the most. Although I don't take the big big lens everywhere because you know it's not always uh, appropriate. But certainly for wildlife, that's definitely been a, such a game changer for me. So, yeah, I think, but of course, you know, it just, it comes back to um, my advice for people would be 
keep learning and reading stories and reading books and, and widening your widening your um, your net of where you get stories from and, and inspiration and it's not all going to come from Instagram, you know, scrolling. You know, you've got to really get out there and find stories that all that that are uh, really interesting and um, and it, and one bit of advice I always love is that if you love something truly, there's going to be so many other people who love it as well. You know, and it might not be for everyone, but there's going to be plenty of other people in the world that think similarly. And if you find it genuinely a story really fascinating, it will resonate with other people, no matter how niche or unusual it is. Um, so that's something I always keep keep in mind. If I if I find it really amazing and interesting, then I know other people will as well. Um, and and then taking risks, I think, is also super important. Calculated risk, um, but when you when you when you feel that something's worth it, don't just be driven by the monetary, you know, risk can be just risking your time, taking time on something. Um, and, um, you know, not everything will pay off, but, you know, the ones that will, will, will progress, will progress you forward. And uh, have you got anything else you want to add? Got a new website that launched last week, which I'm pretty, pretty excited about, untitledfilmworks.com.au, which we put some of our um, latest projects and, and some behind the scenes material and stories. And, um, one thing I also advise people to put your best work forward. Don't, don't put everything you've ever shot up. Um, the work that you're most proud of that represents what you want to, who you are or where you want to go is that's, and if it is one clip and that's what you, if that's what you feel that is, is represents who you are, what you want to, um, say and, and how you want to be perceived, then just have one clip up. Don't have a hundred. People have also short attention spans. They're probably going to only watch one or two things. So put those front and forward, front and center. Um, so our, our site has, you know, Big Cat Tales. It has Tales by Light. It has Ghosts of the Arctic. Um, it's got two or three other projects yet to come that are um, waiting in draft mode as soon as we can share them. And that's it. You know, it's got those um, those projects because that's really, you know, what we want to be known for right now. And, and um, so, yeah, I think that's um, – love any feedback if people have it on the – the new side and uh, we'll be adding to it as uh, as we can. It's been wonderful him sharing all the interesting things about the world of documentary, uh, wildlife documentary and that style of documentary filmmaking. So I really uh, wish you all the best. Thank you, Pete. It's been a pleasure and uh, love to do it again sometime. Will do. Thanks very much. So that was a great chat with Abe. And uh, next week we have Harry Frith, who is a DOP working in LA. So that will be an interesting story to hear his sort of perspective working there. He has a wide range of experience from doing television shows and feature films and documentaries. So make sure to subscribe if you haven't already and uh, look forward to sharing with you in two weeks. Mm